This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for December 7th, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Megan Cantwell talks with investigative correspondent Charles Piller about the use of offshore tax havens by private research funders. And I talk with reporter Meredith Wadman and researcher Rebecca Cunningham, who's received a grant from the NIH to jumpstart research into gun violence prevention. I'm Megan Cantwell, and I'm with Charles Piller, an investigative correspondent for science, to talk about his feature on how private funders for research are making offshore investments. Hey, Charles. Hi. Why are these offshore investments so controversial? I would say that there are two main reasons. One is that when private foundations that fund scientific research invest in offshore tax havens, they raise important questions about the effects of those investments. One is that these investments can have impacts that run counter to the high-minded and important research or educational goals of the foundations. The second is that these investments are protected by a system of secrecy so that the public, donors, constituents being funded by the foundations can't know where the money is being invested. Right. So there's not a lot of transparency with these offshore accounts, but you were able to look at the finances. How were you able to do this then? I took a look at two major sources of information. The first were leaked documents from the so-called Paradise Papers. These are millions of documents that were leaked to the German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung in Munich and provided to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. And I was able to find thousands of documents associated with investments that were connected to many of the major scientific foundations. Also, I was able to look at public documents provided by the foundations themselves, the most important of those being tax returns. Of the private funders that you looked into, which were investing the most in these offshore accounts? Well, from what we can prove from the information that's available, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has by far the largest known assets in offshore havens. 
and that's approximately three billion, maybe a bit more than that, and that's out of about eleven billion in assets. So that's a really substantial portion of their overall assets. Other foundations that had enormous sums invested in these offshore havens were Wellcome Trust and Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Only one among the foundations that we looked at appears to have no involvement in offshore funds, and that's the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You were able to talk to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Did they give you any idea for why they choose offshore investments? Yes, their philosophy was fairly simple, which is that they want to maximize returns so that they can use the additional funds from their investments to fund important scientific research and other ventures that are part of their philanthropic goals. But increasingly, you're seeing a movement within the foundation world to consider the potentially contrary effects of investments on those philanthropic goals. So for example, in our story, we looked at the Wellcome Trust investments in a company that sells bunker fuel, which is a highly polluting form of fuel for ships that is tied to enormous human health problems and deaths. This is the exact kind of pollution problem that Welcome is studying and supporting research on to try to mitigate the effects of. So what you have is a bit of a contradiction. On the one hand, they fund research that's very important to understand the impacts of pollution on people's health and also on climate change. And on the other, they're funding that very research in part with profits from the very companies that are creating the pollution problem in the first place. Do they have any sort of idea of investments that they're certainly going to avoid, or is this not written into how they practice? Well, each foundation operates a little bit differently. So some foundations have strict prohibitions against certain kinds of investments. For example, Robert Wood Johnson will not invest in companies that are involved in tobacco, alcohol, or firearms. They regard it as contrary to their mission. However, Aside from those, they're pretty much open to anything. They see it, as they've expressed to me, as part of their responsibility to diversify and maximize their assets in order to be able to get the best return to best serve their constituencies. And this has been the prevalent attitude among foundations for a very long time, but things are beginning to change a bit. For example, many foundations have now started to say, we're concerned about climate change and pollution. So we've made it a priority not to invest in companies whose practices are particularly egregious associated with their contributions to climate change and pollution. I'd say Welcome has a pretty interesting articulated philosophy about this. So they say, look, we invest in oil companies and mining companies and companies that are known to increase pollution. But we feel that it's better and more helpful for us to engage with those companies rather than to divest, that they think that's a more effective way of going about it. They're investing through these offshore accounts, right? So are they even able to have a direct role in shaping how these companies operate? The direct investments they have, so they buy stock, say, in Shell Oil, in theory, they could use moral suasion or proxies to try to influence the behavior of Shell in a direction that they felt was beneficial for the environment. But 
you're absolutely right to ask about the offshore investments. Those are arm's length investments through managers who often obscure the relationships between the companies and the investors. And as a result, it's difficult to imagine how much their engagement, as they call it, the moral suasion or the direct conversations with these arm's length companies can possibly occur. And we also know that in some cases, the management companies won't even inform the investors of what they're investing in. So it seems like something that came up a lot in talking to these people is that they want to maximize return. So is it true that offshore investments are more lucrative or is investing in things, like you said, that don't contribute to climate change or are more aligned with their philosophy? Is that actually going to lead to a lesser return on their investments? Places like the Cayman Islands, where such funds are often located, have very little red tape, unlike the requirements of the Securities and Exchange Commission of the United States, for example, that you know cost money to comply with those regulations. The regulations exist for transparency and to protect investors and to protect the public. The question is, is it certain that your investments will actually earn more? Well, I think it can vary from case to case. But one interesting example that I found in my reporting was that the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation turned a profit on those investments of about 13% in 2017. By comparison, the Heron Foundation, which is a New York-based foundation that has a very strong emphasis on screening all of their investments to try to prevent any of those investments from contradicting their philanthropic goal of trying to reduce and prevent poverty and engages in no offshore investing. That foundation was able to get a 16% return on their endowment investments. So the point being, even though these can be very lucrative investments, it's obvious that there are other ways also to do well in your investments. Do people on the board of these organizations know that these offshore investments are happening? I think typically the trustees of a large foundation or even a small foundation, they got into the into this business because they care deeply about the issues that the foundation is trying to address and trying to improve in society. And their interest and their knowledge and expertise is often on grants, on the programs of the foundation, not on the details of the investments. And only when controversy arises do they get more directly involved. So for example, a couple of former trustees of that I spoke with of Robert Wood Johnson and Welcome Trust said that never did these offshore questions ever rise to the level of the board discussing them during their tenure on the board. And to me, that seems a little odd considering what important issues these can be for the reputation risk of the organization and for the potentially deleterious effects that these investments can have on the uh, constituencies that the foundations are trying to serve. Are there ways to ensure that these private funders are being conscientious of these consequences? What are some solutions that people have proposed? Overall in investing, there are many uh, ways in which independent organizations have evaluated the social, environmental, and governance performance of various companies and other assets and have been able to advise foundations on where they can place their funds to either minimize 
the potentially deleterious effects of those investments on their goals, and also sometimes to enhance those goals. So in other words, there are some investment funds that support through loans or through other kinds of financial transactions, the sorts of organizations that these foundations would support in their grant making as well. So there's a way to kind of double up on your on your ability to influence the world in a positive way once through your grants and once through your investments. All right. Thanks so much, Charles. You're very welcome. Charles Piller is an investigative correspondent for science. You can find a link to his story at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Stay tuned for Sarah Cresby's interview with Meredith Wadman and Rebecca Cunningham on jumpstarting research on gun violence prevention. This episode is brought to you in part by Bombas. Thanks to two years of research and development and multiple improvements in design, performance, and comfort, Bombas are the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. With an arch support system that provides extra support where you need it most and a cushioned footbed that's reinforced for comfort without added bulkiness, Bombas feels like a hug around your foot. Not to mention, Bombas stay-up technology ensures your socks just don't quit without leaving a mark on your leg. And the super soft cotton material makes you never want to take them off. So whether you're a runner, walker, power lounger, there's a pair of Bombas that'll add comfort to your life. Go to bombas.com slash science mag and use the code science mag for 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash science mag, code science mag, and you'll get 20% off your first order. This week's episode is also brought to you in part by Warby Parker. Warby Parker sells contemporary glasses starting at $95 a piece, including prescription lenses. The lenses also have anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. For every pair you buy, a pair is distributed to someone in need. Warby Parker makes buying glasses online easy and risk-free. Their home try-on program allows you to order five pairs of glasses shipped directly to your door where you can try them on in the comfort of your own home, get feedback from family, friends, anyone who's around, and you can try the frames on for five days before sending them back using a free prepaid return shipping label, no obligation to purchase. And it's 100% free. I personally tried this a few years ago, and it was a really good selection of contemporary, modern-looking frames, and it was great to be able to try them on. I did it all at work because the mail here is really reliable, and I got some colleagues' opinions on my glasses. So head to wearyparker.com slash science mag to order your free home try-ons today. Choose the five frames you'd like to try on, mail the frames back, choose your favorite pairs to have your prescription added to, and order. Warby Parker makes your experience completely risk-free and free shipping all around. Visit warbyparker.com slash science mag to begin your free home try-on experience today. Have an iPhone X? Make sure to download Warby Parker's app where you can use their brand new feature, Find Your Fit. Find Your Fit uses the iPhone X's true depth camera to map and measure key facial features. Using these measurements, Find Your Fit recommends approximately 12 Warby Parker frames that are likely the best fit for your face. The process is seamless and only takes a few seconds. Now we have Meredith Wadman. She's a staff reporter for Science. This week, she wrote a feature on a new grant to jumpstart research on kids and guns. 
Hi, Meredith. Hi, Sarah. How big a problem is gun violence or gun injury in kids in the U.S.? It's the second leading cause of death in 1 to 19-year-olds in this country, second only to motor vehicle accidents. Guns kill about between 8 and 9 kids a day in this country, uh, roughly 3,100 kids, a little more every year. Cancer, by comparison, kills about 1,850 kids a year, so 58% of that number. And yet when you look at the research funding, and just to take one example, not to hang it all on the National Institutes of Health, because the CDC has a huge role to play here, if it would, but the National Institutes of Health spent $486 million in 2018 studying pediatric cancer, which I'll remind you, kills about 1,800 kids, and spent $3.1 million studying how to prevent kids from getting killed with guns. You actually went to Michigan to attend a meeting where people were discussing what kinds of experiments this money from the NIH should go towards. Can you talk a little bit about who was there and, and what they were trying to figure out? Sure. There were roughly 30 gun researchers and trainees in this conference room at the University of Michigan trying to hash out what pilot studies they should take forward as part of this $4.9 million five-year grant from NIH's Child Health Institute. Their aim is to jumpstart research on how to prevent kids and teenagers from being killed by firearms. It seems from your story that one of the changes here is treating gun deaths and gun violence as a public health issue rather than, you know, how to treat them or how to prevent them with laws. It's, it's this other tactic. It is. It's not new to about three dozen gun researchers who have really been working in the trenches for a quarter of a century, attacking this as a public health problem in much the way that motor vehicle crash studies led to things like side airbags and child restraints and seatbelt laws. The idea is to use a dispassionate, inquisitive, scientific-based mindset to get at how do we reduce injuries from guns, not to take people's guns away. At this point, I want to introduce one of the principal investigators on this grant. Okay, so I have Rebecca Cunningham here. She is a professor of emergency medicine at the University of Michigan Medical School and also the principal investigator of the Firearm Safety Among Children and Teens Consortium, or FACTS. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. One thing that did come up in the story was that you did a residency in Flint and you saw a lot of gun violence there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And uh, not just a residency. So I worked there as a resident, but then also as a staff and attending physician for about 10 years in Flint, Michigan, and in Ann Arbor. Really, the worlds that we practice in are, for emergency medicine are two very different worlds, one a suburban world here in Ann Arbor and one a very urban world in Flint, Michigan. And in both places, I've taken care of many uh, young teens and children who have been victims of firearm violence, and it's just heartbreaking. And so those youth that we take care of, at that point, there's very little that can be done almost. You're doing some end-stage life-saving maneuvers, and more often than not, I was spending time in sort of small waiting rooms telling, giving very bad news to parents that their child had been shot and killed that day. And in here in Ann Arbor, had been the victim of finding a gun and using it when they had a suicidal moment and had devastating 
devastating injuries uh, and or was not going to make it that day. And delivering that news any number of times to families, at some point we want to work upstream. What can we do to stop having these discussions? What can we do to stop having these youth arrive in our trauma bays? Um, what should we be doing? Because once once they arrive there, there's very little that can be done. And we do amazing things in medicine, but, but really to have an impact on this, we, we have to work upstream from the trauma bay and outside in our communities. Right. That's a really good segue to this grant and the meeting that you had recently where you discussed different ways of, you know, spending that money and doing different kinds of research. Can you talk a little bit about the kinds of topics that might be addressed with this money? Sure. So understanding that there's been very little research in this field over the past 20 years, we really need to jumpstart the capacity for research Families want to store guns safely. Overwhelmingly, they don't want their young children to be shot. They don't want their suicidal teens to find uh, guns in their home. How we can help get that message across to them and help make it feasible for them to do so in the same way that we helped families 30 years ago understand what the best car seats were and how to have those applied in their cars and find it to be feasible and not annoying for them to do so. That's health behavior research that can be done that can help families around safe storage. Other types of work that can be done with the grant, we have a lot that we don't know about, for example, the built environment and how our cities and streets are laid out in terms of parks and uh, buildings that are in disrepair and, and how that sort of environment can affect firearm violence in those areas. Uh, we have a lot of work to do with better data collection on youth that do come in, for example, through the emergency department. Very little is known on how they do from their mental health after the ER or after school shootings, let's say. We know that those have massive impacts on kids across the country in terms of how they're feeling about being anxious about going to school the next day. PTSD, they might be experiencing either from witnessing those events or from hearing about them on the news. We don't yet have best practices to understand how we can help those youth through those times. The reason that funding was clamped down on about 20 years ago was a political one. So I'm wondering, what's your approach to dealing with some of the political blowback that you might get um, from embarking on this kind of research? Yeah, I think it's really important that we don't see this as a political issue at all. We view this as a safety issue. So, you know, as a physician, we all the time talk to our patients and are worried about our patients' safety. We're worried about whether they're in a car seat for their kids. We're worried about the temperature of their hot water. We're worried about whether or not they're smoking and how that affects their asthma. We're worried about the safety and welfare of our patients. And in the same way, I'm worried about the safety and welfare of the patients that I see arriving in our trauma bay and what we can do to have them not be in our trauma bay. I don't think at our core, when we, we put aside the deep divide in the country right now, that anybody really sees less children dying of firearm violence as a political issue. We all have that common goal. I also want to say really clearly that our grant fully respects the Second Amendment rights. We understand that in our modern age, just as that we have cars and that our cars are not going to go away. Our country has strong support of Second Amendment rights and that we are going to work within that framework. All right. Well, so now that you've had this first meeting, what are the next steps uh, for you and for the FACTS group? We're rapidly gaining momentum. There's a lot of interest by smart young researchers now in the country and how they can apply their skills to this injury problem that they really have, have not been focused on for the past 20 years. So our team is um, working diligently on training the next generation of researchers who are, are joining our work groups. We are working to get those early projects off the ground so that we can start to provide some early answers, both for the country as well as to lead to larger scale um, solutions. 
Thank you, Rebecca. Now, I just want to get back to Meredith Wadman for a couple more questions. She's a staff reporter here at Science. So, Meredith, do you think that we're going to see a rise in funding for this type of research? Is this just the start of something bigger? I think it's a possibility. A lot will depend on what the Congress does. You could take, for example, Nita Lowy, a Republican congresswoman from New York, who last summer tried to put $10 million for gun research, earmarked for it, into the Centers for Disease Control budget, and the Republicans voted it down in committee. Now, Democrats are going to be controlling that committee. Whether they can get it through and into a funding bill and approved by the Senate remains to be seen. Okay. Meredith, thank you so much for talking with me. You are so welcome. That was Meredith Wadman, a staff reporter here at Science. And before that, Rebecca Cunningham, a professor of emergency medicine at the University of Michigan Medical School. She's also a principal investigator for the Firearm Safety Among Children and Teens Consortium. You can read Meredith's feature on gun injury prevention research at sciencemag.org news. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, Write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get podcasts, or you can listen on the science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. To place an ad on the science podcast, contact midroll.com. The show is produced by Sarah Crespi and Megan Cantwell and edited by Apology. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.